0: I'm an independent podcaster, and your support is so important and means the world to me in keeping this podcast running. Link to the Patreon is in the show notes. Hold on to your butts. Thank you. And now on to the show.
1: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
0: Cool. Filled with
1: odd fright. See
0: Jurassic Ride. Right. bend in ember light. See Jurassic Ride. Right. See Jurassic Ride. Right. Ride, ride. See Jurassic Ride. Right. Ride, ride. See Jurassic Ride. Right. Ride, ride. See Jurassic right. ride, ride. See Jurassic Ride. Right. See, right. See
2: Jurassic Park. I feel ya. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks, Ellen, for wanting to chat with me. You're a real scientist.
2: I'm a scientist. I'm an artistic scientist, as a, my grandfather put it back when I was, oh, six or seven. Seven, probably, I think, is when I got my first compound microscope. Wow. Yeah, I still have it. It's in, it's in storage. It's in a red toolbox. That has my name and it says the artistic scientist right underneath it.
0: Whoa. So. Wherever you move next, would you want to throw that up like in the. In, I, I'm, oh, yeah. I, I'm trying to think of like, uh, not a, what's the right word for it? I just feel like everyone, I feel like our age has like in their apartment like one shelf that's kind of devoted to like knickknacks or like cool things that you know mean something you know put photos and stuff like that too
2: yeah no i would for sure put it somewhere where oirik cannot get to it and then (laughs) take it out as often as i can there's prepared slides that go with it and i used to put my pet snail shelly under like under the microscope and look at her whoa when i yeah it was a really small like a garden snail that i found and i had her for four months before she passed away and then we had a funeral for her
0: for Shelly the snail RIP
2: Yeah, I know poor Shelly.
0: Yeah, I know what I mean. I'm holding your your zine in my hands illustrating the evolutionary role of ionotropic glutamate receptors through chemo, chemo sensation of neural signaling in the symbiotic sea anemone Oh god. Anemone <laughs> An X you're you're just totally holding in your laughter right now. I'm assuming uh, uh, ex, <laughs> ex, exia Potasia. Polita?
3: Nope.
2: Very close. (laughs) So my dissertation work has been characterizing a family of protein receptors. So it's, you know, like everything that our bodies are made out of. It's a protein and it tends to, it's a receptor because it has a little, what's called a domain. So a little part of the protein that faces outward toward the, extracellular so outside the cell and that's what makes the receptor and it's ionotropic glutamate so it's an ion channel which is the ionotropic and glutamate is what it responds to but these um, proteins also will connect to other particles or ligands in the environment besides glutamate um and yeah so it's they're chemosensory because glutamate and similar particles or ligands are chemicals. Um, so it's chemosensation or chemical sensory,
3: oh.
0: um, proteins. <laughs> so how did you get, cause you just, you just finished, correct? You, your dissertation?
2: Yeah. I just defended my dissertation two weeks ago.
0: Oh, defended. I love that.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, it was a defense. It was really nice. My parents came out and I had like a full room and, A lot of my Miami family who adopted me when I moved down here, um, they came to see me present my work and I gave them all a zine for coming. And yeah, so I got to stand up there and I talked to everyone, including my committee for just under an hour. And I had everyone ask me questions. And then we had the private um, closed door defense with my committee um, and myself where they asked me questions and I had to make they had to make sure that I knew what I was talking about <laughs> and then after that they're like okay we'll call you back in you know you have some revisions to make on your dissertation the written part of your dissertation but you are a doctor
0: congratulations
2: thank you yeah it's, it's a weird experience It's it's pretty surreal I feel like a scientist I don't quite feel like a doctor yet I think <laughs> that will come
0: with time. I mean, that just reminded me just, you know, uh, just because I feel like on ologies, when Allie Ward is talking to scientists, it's almost like, she's like, doctors, you know, so-and-so. And and they're like, what? And it's like, oh yeah, I guess that's a thing now. It's like, it's, it's funny that there's almost like a, I guess myself as just a non-scientist, it's almost, I think maybe it's easy for us to assume that that being a scientist means that you like have it all figured out in a way, (laughs) I guess. I don't know.
2: Oh yeah. No, I think, I think being a scientist, especially if you decide to pursue graduate work or if, you know, you go into research more of teaching you what you don't know and that we really don't know a lot. And it's about asking the questions and kind of building on our knowledge so we can ask further questions. Ooh. Yeah. That's a lot of what it's about. I mean, you Going through the um, PhD or like any graduate program, you have something which is called a comprehensive or a qualifying exam. And then you also have to do a proposal for your research. And in the process of doing both of those um, different steps, you have to figure out that you really don't know anything. (laughs)
0: Um, I really like that as a as a way to kind of frame this episode, or at least part of the conversation that involves uh, if we can actually bring dinosaurs back or if everything in Jurassic Park is a bunch of magic disguised as scientist mumbo jumbo. But I guess I first <laughs> wanted to ask, how did you get to the point where you are talking about the evolutionary role of ionic glutamate receptors through, I'm not going to say the whole thing again, but <laughs> you know, that's
2: what we call them for
0: short. I glue ours. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. How did you get there? Like how did, from getting your first microscope to, you know, being up there and defending your dissertation? Cause you've contributed to see Jurassic right before writing in and stuff and calling in and everything, which has been so lovely and amazing. And I know Jurassic Park played a little role in, in some of that besides the microscope.
2: <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. So I would say, you know, Jurassic Park has really played a big role, especially with Ellie Sattler. I mean, there are some similarities between between us because my name's Ellen and her name's Ellen and although she goes by Ellie and then we're both blonde and I have so many photos of myself wearing, I mean besides when I've dressed up like her, wearing my hiking boots and like shorts and running around the dirt. I really think you know I was very fortunate to grow up in Oregon and my family was really big on giving us all the opportunities to be able to be outside especially during the summer and the winter and so I grew up quite a bit like a tomboy and I would bond a lot with my dad over being outside and also like those Saturday afternoons when it's pouring outside and it's an Oregon winter or fall day and Jurassic Park is playing as a rerun on TNT or something because I was only a toddler when uh, Jurassic Park came out itself so I didn't see it in theaters Um, but yeah I know but I remember (laughs) like often my dad and I would watch, you know, movies. And a lot of times, you know, they're, they're action movies or something like that. But I really loved science fiction and fantasy when I was growing up. So I'm sure he probably remembers me waking him up from his naps going like, Oh, what's happening? Like what's happening next? (laughs) (laughs) And there's like a few scenes that really stuck out to me. You know, I think when the Because they're brachiosaurus, right?
3: Yes.
2: (laughs) When the brachiosaurus, when they first see them, like, I remember that, like, I don't even remember the actual first scenes of the movie from when I was younger. What I remember mostly is them being on the island and seeing the dinosaurs and interacting with them. And so I would definitely say having a, you know, a female who is out there and really kicking ass and saving people was awesome because I you know, she was off by herself. Like she and Grant weren't really together most of the time. So Ellie really inspired me in that way. And then I also had the opportunity to go to Hawaii when I was pretty young okay. and my parents, yeah, my parents really loved it out there. So, um, I got to a point where I was old enough to, you know, go kind of snorkel and we were on, um, a catamaran called the Sea Smoke which you get this whole cool spiel when you go on the Sea Smoke because it used to be owned by James arness of Gunsmoke. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah, it was the actor so you get this whole spiel. But I remember my favorite time that we went out there and there was a marine biologist named Brooke from Arkansas and she walked me through all the different like little identification pages of what we saw. And I would pick up like lipstick sea urchin tests. So like the skeleton, like that circular skeleton that you kind of can find underneath the water and their spines. And I would ask all the questions I could. And I was really into diving down and getting closer and being able to see everything underwater. And so even though I'm very much a molecular biologist by training, my focus has been on marine invertebrates and organisms under the water and surprisingly that's kind of stuck since I was 8 wow. I decided I wanted to go into marine biology after I first I really wanted to be an entomologist because I loved butterflies but I think entomology was really hard to say and I remember <laughs> I remember trying my hardest to get that word to memory when I was really young but it, it didn't stick as much as marine biology did and And then, yeah, and then I ended up going into molecular biology and learning all about genetics and a lot of work in the bench. So not so much work in the field, but still getting to go out there because I have the skills um, and my lab has allowed me to join them outside in the water. And yeah, in diving, I've been down to the... um, Aquarius, which is the underwater lab that's out of the Keys. Right now, NASA is using it. They use Aquarius for their NEMO missions, where they do like um, extreme environment training for Mars and things like that. Whoa. So, yeah, yeah, it's really intense. Um, every summer, NASA comes down to do training for a couple weeks, weather wow. permitting.
0: Wow. I was going to say, it's funny. Well, I had two thoughts. I've noticed, it tra- and maybe it's just... Maybe I'm only noticing the trend because I'm the one who relates to it or whatever. But as much as like when I was a kid, it was dinosaurs, and I think it's, I mean, I I can see why like dinosaurs and the world of uh, the ocean, I think the kind of unknown and imagination and stuff is, I feel like, very appealing. Like, I still have my marine bio like whale like with a blue whale like I was gonna say flying uh leaping out of the water uh I still have this you know the kind of those kind of picture books with the diagrams and stuff like I still have mine from when I was a kid I think as a kid being a paleontologist or a marine biologist were kind of those like two things when I was around the age when I saw Jurassic Park and also I was gonna say I when I went I also went to Hawaii when I was a kid and I remember getting this like laminated picture guide that you could put around your wrist when you're snorkeling with all the different fishes. (laughs) And it, I, for some reason that has always stuck with me. And just when I was in um, Hawaii this past Christmas in a gift shop, I actually found the same one when I was a kid. And I was just like, I was like, I don't need this now, but I, I bought it again anyway, because I'm like, that just kind of connects me to a time when I was a kid snorkeling, but too scared to snorkel when somebody mentioned there was going to be sharks in this one area. (laughs) Oh, Maybe that's why I didn't become a scientist. But I was going to ask, do you think that, I mean, obviously, again, you said that your main work is, you know, molecular, it's in the lab. But do you think that's like necessary for a lot of people to become a scientist or like to pursue? Or do you think it it can be different?
2: Oh, no, for sure. I completely agree. I think the fact that I was able to go and spend so much of my time actually dissecting creatures or taking in lizards and other creatures as pets and then, and capturing, I was really into capturing bees and everything and like seeing how many bees I could capture in my little insect thing and studying them and looking at them when I was little, just in the garden. So I think that really having those opportunities to be able to, just go out and observe. And I think it is for kids, you know, that's a super innate part of our, you know, curiosity. It's just, Oh, like, how does this happen? How does like, how do these things work? I mean, the reason my mom put me in all day kindergarten was because I asked too many questions and <laughs> she didn't want to have to deal with it. So I, you know, I think for some, for some children, they're definitely a lot more curious, but I think the opportunity to actually go and see or meet the people who ask the questions are, is you know that's so important. And I and I really, I mean, I applaud Allie because I think, especially you know how our world is changing and it's becoming so much more based on you know podcasts and TV shows. You know, we talk about like the Attenborough effect. You know, when people watch. Animal Planet or the different documentaries, there isn't always that option to go out and see things for yourself. So, having those platforms is really important to kind of open our eyes and help us figure figure out, you know, what might be interesting. Cause I don't know why people always ask kids, what do you want to do when you grow up? <laughs> it's a, it's a hard answer. Like, I don't even know really right now. And I just defended my dissertation. So I'm, you know, still trying to figure out what I want to do. And I'm definitely leaning into the science engagement and bridging the gap between science and the public and our communities and thinking about, you know, how, we can teach science or how we can talk about science in a lot of different ways because it's hard to really create something that's tangible without being able to see it.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's almost right now, everyone who's who's doing research and, and things like that. It's like, but also <laughs> where things feel so dire that it's like, well, we also now have to like put on those boots and go out and actually, you know, explain to people why it's important. And maybe like, Hopefully, and I and I think what Ali does so well is that idea of like, th- with her guests able to express in a way that it's kind of like you kind of tap into that, like you said, that childhood curiosity, and be like, "Whoa, this is this is why this is important. This is why it makes me feel this way. Like maybe." we can get people to care because it is kind of tapping into those kind of childhood. Yeah. Like curiosity and and kind of hopefulness for the future (laughs) because it's pretty dire.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it definitely starts first with just the observations so that we can create questions. You know, I think that's one of the great things about having pets or, you know, just being able to go out in nature or, or even work in labs, you know, when we have science museums to be able to go and mess around with the different engineering mechanisms and um, those different physical sciences, even though that's not my, you know, cup of tea. I have definitely loved going to the OMSI, which is the Oregon um, Museum of Science and Industry. Like they had OMSI After Dark, which is a lot of fun for adults where you can, you know, grab a beer or a glass of wine and wander <laughs> around, <laughs> without any kids running around so
3: yeah.
2: I think our world and our ability to be able to really engage and enjoy those um different aspects are yeah are really great and I, yeah my same grandfather who gave me my microscope he I think my 10th birthday I was like I really want to go to OMSI so we're gonna to go to OMSI and that's what I did for my birthday
3: oh cool
0: that's awesome yeah and then you go to the OMSI as an adult and now you can have a drink
2: Yes, for (laughs) sure. I've I've done that on Halloween. It was really fun. I dressed up like Buffy the Vampire Slayer.
0: Nice. By infusing, you know, science with pop culture, hopefully it can be digestible uh, for some people who don't quite understand, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of how things work. But maybe it, you know, at least gets you curious to the point where you maybe will explore further, you know, and I think that was an accomplishment that I think Jurassic Park kind of has done better than a lot of other movies with science in it. You know, I don't think interstellar, uh, maybe I'm criticizing interstellar, but I don't think that movie uh, is a very good, like sci com experience. Whereas I think Jurassic park is like, whoa, like, you know, like I want to go and dig up dinosaur bones or whatever.
2: I do think that Jurassic park did such a good job at, I mean, it, it put you in a situation where, you know, you felt the drama, you were invested, emotionally invested in these characters, but I mean, I I think this kind of also goes with some of Michael Creighton's writing is that he also does a really good job at putting the science in to um, his books. And so, I mean, with Mr. DNA and really like that when they were doing the dino cloning and talking about that and breaking it down for their audience, they got a lot of those things right. Even though if they're not completely could happen, you know, the ideas (laughs) are right. Yeah. (laughs) So. So I think, like, even just that part of Jurassic Park, which obviously, yeah, it was, I hate to use the term dumbing it down, i rather making things accessible, or, you know, we as scientists have to smarten up about thinking, um, how am I going to talk about this in terms that aren't just specific to my particular field, because these are terms that we've made up to explain things, they're not necessarily words in everyone's vernacular, so... I think being able to do that is really awesome. And I mean, that's something that I'm striving for in my work. Oh. And that's why I made my zine. Because <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to be able to hand something to somebody and say, oh yeah, this is what I did with my last five years of research.
0: It's the Mr. DNA effect.
1: <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
3: I mean, I feel like
0: this is this is the perfect time to dive in. So I took IB Bio in high school. And for our final project, I, of course, wanted to do, you know, is Jurassic Park, like, can you bring back a dinosaur? Like, that was, like, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, fr- I wish I had the name of the book. Uh, I don't even know if it's in print anymore. But it came out around, like, probably after The Lost World came out, I think, in, like, 97, 98. And it was a mm-hmm. book basically being, like, taking you through all the steps. You know, if Jurassic park as possible. I think the big, even then the big answer was no, but it's been over 20 years, so things I'm sure have changed, but I, I wanted to get really specific to Jurassic Park itself. That's the thing I realized is that they it almost kind of hit me while well, like just re-watching the Mr. DNA sequence, is that they they tell you how they make a dinosaur and they really never explain it again and, and as an audience member, I don't think you're sitting there questioning while the T-Rex is attacking them, like Oh wait, is this real or so? You know, is this like are these robots that Hammond just made up and is pretending that they're real dinosaurs or whatever? Like, and yeah, I just wanted to go through with you each step of how they they explain how they made a dinosaur, and I just wanted to hear your thoughts. Is it uh, debunk or funk? I don't know if funk is the is the positive word for debunk, but uh, it sounds catchy.
2: I am ready. I have done a
0: little bit of research. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you. Ellen. Wait, Dr. Dow. Is that, is that, can I call you Dr. Uh, Dow?
2: Yeah, I guess so.
0: <laughs> so the first step, and I, I'm not going to do the, like, uh, Mr. Um, caught on a branch of a tree and got stuck in the site. <laughs> um, I don't know why they chose a Texas accent. Is that I wonder why yeah,
2: they... I don't, yeah, I don't know quite why he's, like, Southern or Colonel Sanders or...
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe they just thought that it would be more accessible if it was, like, you know, not in, like, a West Coast or an East Coast sort of...
2: I know, we, we could give it, like, a... What is that? That um, transatlantic accent, you know, speaking, like, uh, ah, hef- the Hepburn hef- or...
3: <laughs> yeah,
0: uh, we got the mosquitoes here, and I got a... Uh, they're going to get the dinosaur blood. Yeah. Or like a British accent or something like a posh British accent. Mm-hmm. So, and and I've boiled it down to just be, again, I'm sure as when you're watching movies and we can talk about that in a little bit, but like, you know how they actually show the science on screen. So it's not, I'm trying to just go purely by what they're literally showing us and telling us on screen. I'm not trying to infer anything, mm-hmm. but it seems like the first step is in order to get dinosaur blood we, you know, to bring these dinosaurs back uh, or DNA, dinosaur DNA, they spe- specify. But um, they basically find the, the concept is that a mosquito bites a dinosaur and then lands on a tree and amber goes over it that, and that amber gets fossilized. So they're saying that dinosaur blood. So to me, they're saying that dinosaur blood and s- subsequently the DNA is trapped inside a mosquito and can survive Uh, has survived over 65 million years. Any, any comments on that first kind of step? It almost sounds like two two steps now because maybe, I mean, can DNA be preserved and then can it be, you know, survived inside a mosquito?
2: Yeah. So, okay. So the first question, you know, can it be preserved? For sure. That could totally happen. But the one issue here is that In 2012, a research or like a paper came out um, with the first author being Alan Toft uh, in the Proceedings of the Royal Society Bee Journal. And it actually says that the half-life of DNA is about 521 years. So for DNA, for dino DNA to survive for 65 million years, you might have some very, very, very degraded DNA in there if anything is able to survive an amber so unfortunately, for that, that's kind of a a debunk.
0: Ah, <laughs> uh, we're de- we're out at step one already. Wow. But
2: but let's but let's pretend that we can, because if you are going to clone something, you do need a template, and your template is going to be the genome, or you know all of the DNA, so all of the genes that you can get from the dino. So for um, for the sake of say we have some dino DNA, I would say like let's move forward because <laughs> I think it's I think it's really interesting to talk about the other parts of the steps as well. Science was has been able to sequence the DNA of a horse fossil that's about you. We can round up to a million years old, so we could potentially um, sequence DNA from animals that went extinct within the last one million years.
0: Oh wow. That's yeah, that's, that's promising. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So you're saying it's like, okay, we can, the DNA might just be very, 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 very,
2: very degraded. Yes. So if you could get something out, it might be a couple of base pairs. So DNA, it's kind of like binary code, but you have four different bases, A, T, C, and G, and these will match up together. So A and T match up together, and then CNG match up together, and so this is what creates, like, our two different sides of our DNA, because DNA has um, two strands that go together versus one strand, which is what you find in RNA, and that's what's used to make proteins. This is where a lot of my work comes in, because I do a lot of molecular biology and genetics, Uh, so I've done a lot of RNA extracting and DNA extracting of... um, Yeah,
0: of my anemones <laughs> and your friends. Sorry, that was yes. the dumbest joke ever. <laughs> I mean, look, I don't want to quit now, but so we have to keep moving on. We have to yeah. keep moving forward. We can't quit. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, and then this will this ties into your to the next step, which is they basically take this dinosaur DNA that they've extracted from the mosquito inside the fossilized amber, and they say that these DNA sequences are long and full of holes, which I'm, I'm assuming, as you mentioned, that this is the degraded part, in that before they can go any further, that the scientists have to sort of take these sequences and they have to, quote unquote, um, well, they have to break them down, but these thinking machine supercomputers and gene sequencers break down the strain in minutes with the help of virtual reality. What does that all mean?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, first, My one debunk is using virtual reality. Having people do this would take way too long. So I would take that out of there. (laughs) Actually, so the first thing you have to do to um, figure out, you know, how these sequences are going to lie together is you do what they call sequence DNA. So you have, you know, this whole jumble of biological stuff, right? And you have to break it apart and then you have to, sequence so figure out what order the a's the t's the c's and the g's are occurring in right yeah they talk about the um full holes which is the degradation so no matter how old the dna is there's going to be some of that unless it was preserved right on the spot a lot of times you know if i'm working or someone else is working you know they'll have life tissue and then they'll be able to extract the dna from that and then you won't get so much degradation also when you do sequencing you tend to cut up the DNA into portions because you have a genome which is going to be somewhere between um, 0.5 megabase pairs, or which is a megabase is a million base pairs. <laughs> To um, 1 million megabases, so 1 million, million base pairs. Wow. <laughs> so DNA, can, yeah, so genome can be really, really, really long. So what you need to do is you can do a few different methods of sequencing. Some methods are very um, short strand reads. So this is where you have a shorter segment of DNA. And you so you like break down your DNA, and you read these pairs. And then you can have long paired reads. And so these are really longer, much longer strands of DNA. And what you do is you kind of overlap these strands of DNA. So you put them together, kind of like overlapping ladders together, and you find where areas are matching up, and then you can actually put the whole strand together by finding the overlapping parts, so where the sequences have been the same or are conserved, and you you definitely do have to use a computer to help you figure out when these different base pairs come up and the possibilities of where they're going to align and what is most um, likely to happen in our DNA strands. So yeah, so that, I mean, that's how you would do that. And people, okay. we do that in science. I mean, I've, I have sent in my DNA or my C DNA because a lot of times I will take my RNA and I'll, Make um, complementary DNA and I will sequence that to wow. match to my genome that I have for my organism of my Aptasia or ex aptasia palata. They changed the name in the middle of my uh, <laughs> working with it. So, so I often call it Aptasia, even though technically its new genus is X aptasia
0: Look, dinosaur people have the same, you know, paleontologists have the same problem when, you know, Brontosaurus was found to not be real, you know, just to be a combo of other things. And, you know, so it's not quite the same, but you know, it's, you got the catchy name and then you have to, you know, change it in between. It's frustrating. I'm sure. Yeah,
2: I know it's, it's awful, but (laughs) science moves forward and we keep figuring out new stuff and we have to roll with it.
0: That's yeah No, that's very true. And then some more context for when you're breaking down these sequences, uh, just from my understanding is that like most DNA for life is essentially a lot of it's the same. So it's just is when you're breaking it down and kind of breaking it into these parts, is it just sort of like, well, all of this is the same in everything. And then, you know, this is the part that's different that they're looking for. Is that part of it?
2: Yeah, a lot of different mechanisms or... Proteins are going to be conserved, so you can have like a a reference template to use to compare that to. Because so we're if we're talking about DNA, we're talking about those base pairs, those ATCG base pairs, and so three of those together make one amino acid, and so that's the building blocks of life, or yeah. one of the building blocks of life. Where um, if you have an amino acid and you add more amino acids to that. That's where we start talking about protein because when we add all these amino acids together, these, um, they act differently. Like some of them are hydrophobic, some are hydrophilic. So either water hating, water loving, they have different, Oh, what's the word? Like different polarities, different things that they're attracted to in the environment. So they're going to fold and act differently and interact differently based on the order that they come in or, what base pair they're next to. So that's how we have proteins actually work. And a lot of these will be conserved across organisms. And it's really the key points that differ. So there are, you know, either single nucleotide polymorphisms, which is pretty much when you have that um, ATCG base and one of those differs, but you still have like the same protein, that's where we get into really the nitty gritty of what makes an organism, you know, this species versus that species or look like this versus looking like that. That's when it starts to get a bit more complicated. And then it's like really helpful to start talking about corn and things like that yeah. <laughs> when you're when you like go back to genetics lab.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely going to look it up if anybody's even tried to be like, how closely related are dinosaurs and humans? Like in terms of like the differences in DNA or something like that, if that's even a thing like fungus is like more closely related to animals than plants or stuff like, you know?
2: Yeah. I mean, well, evolution is, it's really crazy. And so this actually brings me to our, our third step of the dino cloning yes. where they talked about using the frog DNA to fill in the holes. So like fill in those like extremely degraded parts that you can't actually fill in. And I just was like, why frogs? <laughs> why not use birds if they're more closely related?
0: Yeah. I wonder if at the time. Yeah. Because that is the yeah the third step. Use the complete DNA of a frog to fill in the holes in the whew, Code! Or no, he says afterwards. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I wonder, as far as, you know, cinematic and, you know, film language and stuff goes, I wonder if they just kind of were trying to break down, I, because I believe in the... I, have you read the Jurassic Park book?
2: I have, but it's been a while. I read, I read both Jurassic Park and The Lost World. Oh,
0: awesome. Yeah, I feel yeah. like maybe in the original book, there was a bigger reason for it, and sort of, to just kind of pare it down.
2: So... Actually, I, I do have a theory about this oh, and cool. I think some of it kind of comes from what I've read is that it's, I think it's more of a plot point
3: Oh,
0: oh.
2: because we, we have frogs that can switch sexes. Yeah. Of
0: course. You're right. You're right. A hundred percent. I mean,
2: you, you have fish as well that can switch sexes and other organisms. You know, I think it's parrot fish. Like, you know, there's a, uh, you know, like they'll have like one. I don't know if it's one female or one male, and then like a whole bunch of the other sex that tend to swim around, and then when that one dies, the one of the biggest one will turn into the um next sex. So I think I think Crichton used it a little bit more of as a plot point with the frogs. And then also I I did read something about how like Grant really wouldn't know that dinosaurs need um movement, like won't see you know, you, if you, unless you move and that's also a bit more of a frog trait is some of them work more off of movement based sight?
0: Ah, okay. So. I didn't, I didn't know that. That's interesting because that, well, cause that's my question is, can you use, has this been done? I guess is my question. Has somebody not to dinosaurs, obviously, but has somebody <laughs> taken DNA from another animal and like, patched up another has somebody patched up a DNA sequence across species
2: uh I I have
3: whoa
2: yeah so what we do and if you um want to study a particular gene so you know the gene codes for the RNA that codes for the protein what you can do is you can take a bacteria cell and you can insert your DNA into a plasmid which is a circular strand of DNA. And you know, all of the different codes that are within that plasmid. So each little part codes for, and so you can break it in a certain spot, put your strand of DNA into that one, seal it back up, and then put it into a bacteria cell. Wow! And then you can grow up the bacteria cell and then actually extract the plasmid if you want to um, increase the amount Uh, genetic code for that particular gene that you're interested in. So this is something I've done. It's a really quick and like kind of like a fast and dirty way to produce a lot of material. So genetic material that you want to isolate. And it kind of goes hand in hand with um, PCR, which is polymerase chain reaction, which is where you actually add the enzymes and all of your raw materials, like your base pairs and everything into a tube and you can exponentially create more of that same genetic code that you used as your template within there. Wow! So yeah, there's a lot of different ways to do this, and yeah, using bacterial cloning is one of the easiest ways to increase genetic material for only like certain amounts. Like I've I've only cloned around uh, three to seven. 100 base pairs. So I haven't not too long, or I, I guess they're kilobases. So 3000 to 7,000 Wow, or somewhere around there. Yeah. For my different genes that I've worked with.
0: You have created life. I'm <laughs>
2: I, have. <laughs> I have, you have to get certified and I had to have um, the department sign off on that. I could do these different things. Like there's checks and balances and you have to dispose of everything very carefully because We use E. coli cells, so,
0: yeah. Wow, that that really is very Crichton-y to me. Like, kind of the nuts and bolts of, you know, like, again, because, you know, Jurassic Park, the movie, can only really go into this. But I could totally see Crichton going into, as far as, like, explaining the science of, like, the committees that are involved in approving yeah, you're a bit like a scientist ability to like that's stuff that just we never really think about. It's just it's just I just I think people assume or I just assume you're like going in and just squirting this stuff into a into a test tube and then out pops, you know, the things that you need.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, pretty much. That's how it is. It is a little <laughs> bit magical, which is funny because I mean, you don't really think about that when you're being trained at the bench. and You're like, OK, so this is how this works and this is how this works. But yeah, a lot of people just I mean, you're not going to think about it if you don't have to do it. So yeah, it's really cool to be able to say, oh, no, yeah, you actually can do this.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I just wonder how what was the approval for. Well, I mean, I'm sure that <laughs> I'm sure that there was. A... Uh,
2: I think I think there was some under the radar or some paying people off that happened to get Jurassic Park rolling.
0: <laughs> oh Yeah, no, that makes sense. As far as our adv- I mean, because obviously Jurassic Park, it's set in 1993 and they were probably doing this stuff, I think, with Fallen Kingdom. They had been, you know, doing it for probably maybe half a decade even before they perfected it in Jurassic Park. Because uh-huh. I think they mentioned in Fallen Kingdom that the first dinosaur they created was a Triceratops at Lockwood Manor. But um, yeah, I mean, in, in you know, it's it's sci-fi, but I mean, is this kind of ability, this you know, the, the things that you've done, was that possible? you know 20 30 years ago or or was that or was that really truly a sci-fi concept back then
2: I think it was a it was definitely probably more of a sci-fi concept but the foundations of all the science aside from having degraded DNA was totally plausible I mean and they really didn't find out the half-life of DNA until 2012 so if you know say we didn't know that say it was a different half-life, you know, say it could live a lot longer, then yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely plausible. I mean, it, it would take a lot of trial and error, but I mean, and the whole point about science fiction is like, how far can we push things? And honestly, morally, cause you know, <laughs> we want to maintain like a, you know, a certain air of if I have this, like, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Mm-hmm. So what can I do? you know, to improve things or to better life for people by having these, this knowledge and this, these different protocols that I'm able to follow and to create something new or, or create something better. You know, I, I think when we start talking about cloning, it's, it's a lot more interesting. We talk about like cloning organs or things like that and helping, you know, people in that way in respect to human health. But also, you know, if we can clone um, organisms that are currently, you know, under threat of extinction, you know, how if we could do that, how could we, um, you know, introduce them into their native habitats, or be able to preserve these animals for future generations to see? Yeah, that's the thing that I'm really afraid about. It's <laughs> just what you know, what my you know siblings' kids are nieces and nephews and gray and nieces and nephews, like what are they going to see in the future? You know, is it going to be anything like what I've seen growing up? So
0: yeah. Yeah. We're just going to bring North America back to the uh, place to scene where like there used to be lions and woolly mammoths and stuff in North America. We're going to make it, we're going to take it back to those <laughs> days.
2: Oh yeah. That sounds, that sounds great. <laughs> oh, I love the, um, Smilodons.
0: Yes. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. Save two tigers.
0: Ugh, that would be, I mean, look, they're just cats with big teeth. That's all.
2: Honestly, I have one right now. She is trying to get my attention.
0: She's pure <laughs> Smilodon energy. Oh, yeah. The next step is so they've used the DNA of a frog to fill in the holes in the code. And, you know, they've done the patchwork, the quilt work to put it lightly in order to make this thing a solid. Um, you know, it's the meme of where the, like, the guy's slapping the car. Like, we can fit, like, 20 million DNAs in this bad boy or whatever. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, fundamentally, the next step that they show in the movie is bingo, dino DNA. Like, they basically, all they have to do is just take this DNA and just, um, and, you know, this is where they move to a more visual, you know, visual kind of explanation, which is basically it just shows them injecting ostrich eggs with dinosaur DNA.
2: Yeah. <laughs> which, I mean... Yes, actually. So,
3: wow.
2: part of my work, and I wasn't able to do this, unfortunately, but in my case, to study my particular proteins, I was going to use frog eggs and I was going to inject either the um, messenger RNA, which can be translated into protein, or um, DNA and like the proper. Um, materials to create RNA and the DNA into frog eggs to then express or to like actually have the protein that I was interested in studying in this way you know think about it you you have a cell that has all the nutrients and whatnot that you need and if you put the code in there that cell will start to act like the genetic information that is in there And essentially an egg is a single cell, right?
0: Oh, it's just one big or not big or in the, in the dinosaurs case using an ostrich egg.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't quite know the mechanics of how ostrich eggs work, but I mean, if you think about it too, like with the chicken egg, like, you know, if you crack open a chicken egg and there's the yolk in there, like that's all like the nutrients and stuff, but that's at one point in time, like that's, that's a single cell. that everything's just going to divide a lot and a lot and a lot keep dividing until you have a chicken in there that will hatch out. And, and I mean, cells. So within each cell, you have all the same genetic code, which is the genome and why we have like skin versus eyeballs versus hair, you know, versus like our liver and our lungs that's all about cell differentiation. So this is when our cells start to express different proteins and behave differently based on the proteins that are being expressed. So like in our, say on our tongues, we're going to have a lot more receptors that are going to be like receptors for tasting, or even like in our nose, you know, we're going to have like receptors. Um, I mean, I guess you kind of like taste with your mouth still, but, um, when you breathe in, but you're going to have sensory receptors in that way. Like in our eyes, we have sensory receptors for light in our body. Like we're going to have like nerves and those different receptors. The really cool thing about my research is what I was doing the iguars and we have these proteins in our brains. And this is what helps us send signals from, one synapse to the next. It's a receiver. All these ions that travel from one neuron to the next, that is sending a signal and it's using ions. So theoretically, yeah, that if you had the whole genomic information, all the genetic information to make a dyno, and if you had an egg that would functionally work to express it and to create A new dinosaur, I mean, you just have to make sure all the machinery is there, and then you can start (laughs) expressing, like, you need, like, to make sure all, like, you have, like, all your mitotic information correct. But if you are able to have that, then essentially, yeah, you could have, like, this bird dino baby.
0: (laughs) Um. I know. I'm just imagining, like, them injecting... That's the part that I'm curious about is more of like, is it just like an egg filled with mush and then the DNA and they inject the DNA and then it just slowly transforms into a dinosaur? Or is it like an ostrich embryo that like, that just shows my, my ignorance about how life forms from,
2: yeah. from nothing yeah, no. to,
0: you know, being born.
2: So I think if you, cause it'd be tricky. So you'd have to inject like, instead of just, so I believe like birds are similar to, you know, how we are. We are diploid organisms. So what makes us us is, you know, we have like half of our father's DNA, half of our mom's DNA. That's like when the sperm and the egg meet. So if you are thinking about, you know, we have the mother who's an egg, father with a sperm, those are two haploids. Put them together, you have a diploid. So if you think about with our ostrich egg, if we're going to have an organism We'd have to make sure there's no ostrich genetic information in there and then purely just put in the dino DNA. And we could do that by like degrading the current DNA with like an enzyme, so breaking everything up or extracting it and then putting in our own dinosaur information. And as long as we have like a blank slate of a cell, then you could actually, it seem more plausible. I don't know about the exact mechanics, though, about how you would do that. But you could could definitely, I I can see injecting DNA into a cell. So that's that's plausible.
0: I'm just imagining just like a, it's like around Christmas when I would shake up my Christmas presents and it'd be like, is this a box of Legos, you know? And it's like the ostrich egg is they just like squirt in a bunch of DNA and it's just like, they just shake it around like it's a cocktail. (laughs) It's like, "Uh, I don't know how this literally works, but it seems again, this is the point in which in this sequence, it kind of just now in Jurassic Park, they sort of like, here's the mechanics to get to the fact that we can work with dinosaur DNA. And then it's sort of, you know, like it's very, I mean, what's so funny. And I don't know if you, if this is a part that you enjoy, but I love the idea that when Dr. Sattler and Dr. Grant and and Malcolm are all very much like, wait, how do we, What you know, we want to see the mitosis. And it's like, Hammond is putting on a show for them to kind of gloss over this, you know, he's glossing over these steps very lightly, even in the world of Jurassic Park, because this might be a tour that, you know, regular people are, you know, non, non-scientists non are, are going on this tour, you know, this is me visiting Jurassic Park. But of course, because they're scientists and they want to know how things work, it's like, what I love about that sequence, and to me, what makes it really funny and believable is that, like, they're not just happy, like, they can't, settle for this this kind of explanation they want to know the nitty-gritty as well
2: oh yeah for sure I mean I I loved that I really appreciated that they're like just wait like what um (laughs) because they yeah they understand and it's also I mean for them it kind of taps into their childlike wonder when they're just like I cannot believe that this is actually happening Like, please reason with my scientific brain about how this is happening.
0: Yeah. And they literally, they, they literally stop the middle. It's like getting off in the middle of Haunted Mansion. Like they literally get off the ride because they're so curious and so just need to know how this, you know, they want to know, they want to dig deeper. Uh, (laughs) Sorry for the, going to keep making puns.
2: That was a great plot. Thank you.
0: (laughs) But uh, they're not willing to accept the, the the surface layer explanation. They want to dig deeper. I, I, I thought the way Spielberg did that whole sequence felt very, you know, as relatable as far as, you know, that goes and stuff and making it. And, and it kind of is a good way of like making us believe and, and kind of accept it, but also know that there are still questions out there.
2: Yeah. And you don't want to lose your audience. So he definitely had to keep it moving versus you know really staying on anything that was like too scientific um because i think creighton does go a little bit more into parts of that but yeah i mean it's, it's a film yeah it's a science fiction film like you, you kind of just have to take things for how they are. Yeah, in that reality.
0: It's not like in this movie, like even when people are being dinosaur, like eaten by dinosaurs. It's not like Malcolm is being like, "This is not possible." You weren't able to D- dinosaur DNA would be too de- <laughs> de- degraded. What is this? <laughs> you know, like no, yeah,
2: <laughs> no, we that's, this is a parallel universe where DNA just happens to stick around for a lot longer. And they have a lot more technological advances. <laughs>
0: yes, exactly. Well, and then again, next, it's, you know, it's the South Park uh, underpants gnomes, you know, steel underpants, step two, step three, profit. It's so then the next step, a baby dinosaur hatches. Boom. We did it.
2: Yeah. I'm. I'm gonna say we're especially with the Velociraptors. We're just gonna have to throw them in with a bunch of cats and have the cats teach them on how to be dinosaurs. Aww, uh,
0: I want Blue to have a cat friend.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think I definitely tweeted that Velociraptors are like the cats of you know the dinosaurs because based on my experience with my own cat. No, they're she very is a <laughs> ferocious beast.
0: <laughs> yeah, they're very. I feel like. Blue is definitely modeled after, like, the behaviors I feel like are very, very cat-like.
2: Yeah, very cat-like. Just curious, but also, like, I'm going to do my own thing because I don't really care about you, but I do kind of care about you, but I still have my own agenda, so. <laughs>
0: yeah, dinosaurs are fiercely independent. Uh, or at least yeah. the, the theropod predators are um, that we've seen. Yeah. I guess at this point now, I think my assumption is going to be that They've made it this far. So if we can inject <laughs> if we can you know inject DNA into dinosaur DNA into a cell and then it doesn't have you know any DNA from anything else from the original source, then we can theoretically grow and hatch a baby dinosaur that comes out all looking cute but also covered in gross little like mucusy stuff and things <laughs> around it.
2: Uh That's how, that's how all living creatures come out with mucusy stuff around them. Unfortunately,
0: (laughs) they don't just, it's not like the spice, the spice world movie where like the baby pops out perfectly clean.
2: No, unfortunately not. (laughs) You gotta have to like rub that stuff off.
0: (laughs) If they can get through these steps, then, then that is just, that's almost the easy part at that point. Or maybe not easy, but. Uh,
2: yeah, I mean, well, you'd I mean, you're just going to have to, I mean, with any like baby creature, they're going to need something to look up to as like a parent or whatever, you know, give the Velociraptor babies to a cat, you know, just make sure they're nice and fed. And, um, you know, I like, guess Stegosaurus could go to like dogs or Aww. I don't know. <laughs> I think them as a cow? little puppy. Oh. <laughs> Cows, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, at this point, it's it's kind of like a done deal. I, and then it's not the last step, but it's it's kind of in the movie. It's kind of the only other. Again, we talked about how these scientists are, you know, our, char- our favorite our favorite characters. They're. They're questioning it, you know, but ultimately it's not questioned too much because like you're saying, you want to keep the narrative going, but they still have this one qualifying moment where, you know, Dr. Wu says that all the, all the dinosaurs are female because that all animals, I think he says animals or just all living creatures, or I forget what the exact saying is, but that all animals are inherently female um, as far as gender goes. And they basically deny them a hormone at a particular stage in their embryonic development to make the male. And so I guess my question is is it a hormone? Is it, it can you actually deny certain things like that? Like can you deny you can you control the development like that?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, we can think about this in a few different ways. You know, if you think about sea turtles, how they um, differentiate into different sexes it's by temperature. Oh wow. Based on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really cool. Actually, this is another like super random thing I did, but I spent a few months down in Ecuador and I worked with an NGO down there during um, shark bycatch and working with like sea turtle um, monitoring of nesting sites. And, um, and it's actually where the eggs are within the nest. And, like, you know, it's going to be cooler toward the bottom of the nest, warmer towards the top. And dependent on the temperature, you're going to, like, where they are in the nest, you're going to have, like, females versus males. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, based on how the dinosaurs are developing, you know, what causes the hormones, there's a few different things you could do. So, because we're, we are theoretically here just putting in the whole genome versus, you know, for us humans, we have an X and a Y chromosome, or, you know, XX, XY, and then there's a whole bunch of other combinations in between if our dividing doesn't quite go right within our gametes, so those are like our eggs and our sperm. In our dinosaurs, what we could do to select for females is it could be a temperature-based thing because they are, I mean, I guess they're more closely related to birds. So I'm not quite sure how birds differentiate their sexes. But one of the things that you can do to um, affect how proteins are expressed. And so in here, like we have our hormones, which are like steroids and such. You could either like actually inject them with like a steroid to make them more female.
0: Yeah, we're big dinosaurs. Uh, Yeah, we're so (laughs) buff. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, sorry, that was a dumb joke.
2: <laughs> and you can also work with like micro RNAs or other targeting features that can break down the protein before they become protein. So you could target the, um, the RNA or like the mRNA before it has a chance. So that's kind of like gene therapy, I guess, is a way that they you could do it. But I mean, we we're talking about eggs. I mean, as might, if you have a complete genome, I mean, what you're really going to want to do is, you know, just focus on figuring out what makes the sex a certain sex, and then figuring that out within the genome rather than, like, after the fact. Or, I mean, if you have it after the fact, which I'm guessing this is kind of what they had to do, is that they should just start cloning females rather than, you know, leaving it up to nature.
0: okay. I mean, as far as, like, Jurassic lore goes, it's... And the Lost World book gets into it a lot more, the idea that this wasn't that the way that they showed how they made dinosaurs in Jurassic park in the original book and movie, that that mm-hmm. wasn't necessarily the whole story that it's kind of like the scene in alien resurrection. I don't know if you've seen it where, where Ripley goes in and sees like all the like faulty broken versions of herself and you know,
3: all oh, the all, yeah.
0: all the mistakes and everything. And so yeah, I'm wondering maybe, well, Oh, go
3: ahead. I
2: think we kind of got into part of that within And I don't know if it was in the first Jurassic Park. No, it wasn't within the first, but definitely I think within the third. Remember, they were kind of like going through that room with all like the different like preserved.
0: Yes, yes. Like raptors. Yeah, that was Jurassic Park three.
2: Yeah. And like the one was like hiding behind. (laughs) (laughs) Like where they're like, oh, it's just like in the liquid. You know, it's preserved. But it wasn't. Yeah. I can only imagine that it was there was probably yeah a lot of Frankenstein's monster <laughs> stuff going on beforehand. Cause yeah, cause I mean science is not pretty all the time, especially if you're talking about, I mean, in Malcolm's word of like playing God and, you know, having control over an organism and how it's developing and what its makeup is. It's you it's something that's extinct. So you don't have the complete information and you're kind of playing Russian roulette with, is this gonna work? Nope. Okay, is this gonna work? So yeah, so that's like a, definitely a scary thing. I'm sure they had to do a lot of troubleshooting.
0: Yeah, <laughs>
2: to put it nicely. Yeah, well, yeah. Figure that
0: out. Well, and like you said, it's like if they have the entire sequence, they maybe they don't need to deny. You know, they don't need to do the gene therapy. They could, or like maybe they they tried both steps or something, and maybe at some point in that world, they were like, oh, let's just do it during the you know the embryo stage when we're you know growing out of the ostrich egg, or maybe we're going to do it at the like DNA level. And yeah, maybe there's like budgetary reasons why they're doing one thing (laughs) over the other or something, you know?
2: Oh, for sure. I mean, some things are definitely a lot cheaper in molecular biology than others. Yeah. If you can do it like the cheaper, easier way, and that seems to work fine, then that works. I mean, yeah, it could just be like when they're injecting with the DNA and they see that there's division happening, then they, you know, Inject whatever hormones they're wanting to be upregulated versus not.
0: Yeah, they're like, uh, Ham like, Wu's well, like, look, we need more of a budget for this. And Hammond's like, no, we got to spend it on the merchandise. Then we can afford, you know.
2: Yeah, we got to <laughs> buy all that ice cream. What about that Chilean sea bass?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, 100%. Talking about the responsibility of science and cinema. Uh, and I don't know, for you, for you, as far as like, I don't know if there's camps, but I think you mentioned earlier, you know, it's like, it's a movie. So you still got to kind of keep it accessible and stuff. And as somebody who is passionate about com and kind of wanting to make things accessible, like for you, where, like, where does Jurassic park fall on this scale? Is it irresponsible? Like medical shows where it's just like, Oh, a defibrillator doesn't really do that (laughs) versus like, well, this is just dinosaurs. So it's fine if you kind of, you know, fudge it a bit.
2: I think in this case, It's totally fine that it fudged it a bit. They fudged it because for Jurassic Park, like they have seriously inspired a lot of scientists for this era. And I think just like with the oceans, with dinosaurs, there's so much mystery and just the unknown possibilities that in this world, they had the opportunity to kind of explore this. And you see Hammond and, you know, and Ellie and Grant, and even kind of Malcolm, like, giddy with joy about seeing these things that they never thought they would ever be able to see. So even though, you know, in our world here, yeah, that's pretty irresponsible. And I would not clone a dinosaur to have it in this cinematic universe. It's amazing. And with the music and, you know, each time it swells, and uh, when you see the Brachiosaurus, like, I would not change Jurassic Park at all. and. As, you know, a sci-fi movie from 1993, it's better than a lot of sci-fi movies that are coming out these days.
0: I love that. You're like, look, we're not going to be in danger of people with, like, backyard uh, gene sequencing kits, like making raptors on the black market or something like that.
2: <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, if anyone actually knows how to do that, that would... I would be really interested in, <laughs> in knowing just to understand how they're actually doing that. But yeah, it's a very inspiring film. It's an action film. There's, you know, there's drama. There's, you know, a kick-ass independent female. Actually, two kick-ass independent females. I mean, Lex really comes to the rescue at the end because she's a hacker. Yeah. Um, (laughs) You know, and she's really, and girl code is really becoming, you know, like the girls who code and um, having like women as computer scientists and computer engineers is really exploding right now.
0: Oh, wow. This has been so awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, this is, this was so great. I really appreciate you going through all the steps. It's like a game show almost or something, you know? (laughs) And you yeah. make a dinosaur, you know. So, I,
2: yes, unfortunately, no. Yeah, but the idea is really cool. Yeah, and there's a lot of good science behind it.
0: Thanks, everyone, again for listening. Thank you again to my wonderful guest, Ellen G. Dow. She's amazing. Why don't you give her a follow at Ellen G. Dow on Twitter or X or whatever? And uh, Ellen Grace with three R's on three R's. Yes, three R's. I am wearing my glasses uh, with three R's on Instagram. Again, put it in the show notes. Please follow Sea Jurassic Right on Patreon. You can support me there. Uh, that would be so wonderful, um, especially as we're going back, get going back, getting back, getting back into the swing of things. And you can always follow me at Stephen Ray Morris on all the things SJR pod, Sea Jurassic Right. And until next time, hold on to your butts. I'll see you again soon.